Last week, we had the pleasure of having Dr. Doug Bookman with us for our Passion Week conference. Many, many of you were able to be here for all or part of that, and it was a, it was a really delightful time just to be with, with Doug, and I think that he did not disappoint from those of you that I've had the privilege of talking with in terms of just unfolding uh, the amazing narrative of the life of Christ, and in particular in that final week Uh, beginning with the triumphal entry on Sunday and then culminating, of course, with the resurrection in the following Sunday. It was, um, I've heard him speak on this topic many times, and and each and every time I hear him speak, I'm just blown away by it all and uh, managed to jot down a couple of more uh, notes to myself of things that that, uh, he said that I hadn't caught the first time around. So it's rich, rich material. And so as I was thinking about all of that in uh, relation to this week, you know, next week being Easter, of course, the Resurrection Sunday, and we'll be preaching a resurrection message. Right now I'm thinking seriously about Acts chapter 17 and Paul's message there to the Athenians on Mars Hill that ends with his great statement about uh, that God has appointed Christ as both Lord and Judge uh, through the resurrection from the dead. So I think that's the text we're going to end up in for Easter. I need to decide that pretty soon, obviously. Um, but what I, I, I was thinking about this week, and I thought, I, I really don't want to go back to the fifth chapter of Ephesians between the, that glorious uh, Passion Week conference that we had and the Resurrection Sunday that's coming. I just didn't want to turn back to Ephesians chapter 5, where we were told there to... Uh, to uh, not only avoid the deeds of darkness, but to expose them. And uh, there is a powerful message that Paul has for us there, but I, I just didn't want to do it on uh, the triumphal entry Sunday, on Palm Sunday. So, what I decided to do is to return to the life of Christ with you as well, and just sort of keep the ball moving here. You remember the reason we planned that Passion Week conference was to get our minds thinking towards Resurrection Sunday because it has a tendency to sneak up on us. So hopefully the Lord will enable me to, um, to move the ball forward, at least incrementally, and help you and I both to, to maintain the groove, as it were, and to continue to think about Jesus, and in particular, his humanity. So what I want to do is, uh, is turn you, we're going to be all over the place, I think, but I'll just turn you to begin with the First Peter, First Peter chapter 2, and in particular verse 21. First Peter chapter 2, and in particular verse 21, and I just want to lift an idea out of that and set that as kind of the baseline for where we'll go together this morning in the scriptures. So First Peter chapter 2, and in verse 21. We're jumping into the middle of a context. I'm not going to take the time to set all of that because I just really want to lift out this one idea. But there in verse 21, Peter says, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. This word example, Ahupagramos is the, is the Greek word, and it has the idea of a, of a pattern or an outline. Or it could even be translated a tracing. So an example, a pattern, an outline, a tracing. The idea is something that is original that will then be copied. And when successfully copied, it will be 
identical to that original, to that, to that pattern, to that example, to that outline. It will conform to it. And so Peter says here that, that Jesus has, led, has left us a tracing of his life, an example of his life, a pattern of his life. In the context here, it's about suffering and so forth. But the bigger principle that I want to lift out of that is that the humanity of Jesus Christ is something worthy of contemplation, something worthy of serious consideration, because it is an example for us. It is a pattern for us. It is a tracing for us. In other words, that there is, in the life of Christ, in the humanity of Jesus Christ, we can find the supreme example of the spiritual life, the supreme example of what it means to live authentically human. And so I've titled this morning's message, The the Word and the Spirit in the Life of Christ. And that's what we'll be looking at, is we will be looking at the work of the Word and the Spirit in the life of Christ, in the humanity of Jesus Christ. And as we do so, there are lessons for us. Now, Paul writes in Philippians, along the same line here, Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5. Contemplating again the humanity of Christ. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Phroneo. An attitude, a mind, it's translated in the English Standard Version. A, A way of thinking would be a good way to translate this. Have this way of thinking in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then Paul goes on to talk about the incarnation and and the humiliation of Christ and how he humbled himself in order to serve. And that is a model, of course, for the church there in Philippi and for Christians in general, is that we are to have that kind of mindset, that kind of way of thinking, to follow Christ in what he himself did there in his humanity. And so again, the same kind of an idea is there is something about the life of Christ that is that is we are that God intends for you and I to contemplate, to think seriously about, and to copy or to follow along, to think like he thought, to, to act like he acted, to do as he did. There is a book, it was mentioned here in the conference last week, by uh, Gerald Hawthorne, who was uh, published in 1991. It's called The Presence and the Power. The Presence and the Power, it's subtitled, The Significance of the Holy Spirit in the Life and Ministry of Jesus. It's a really fine book. I would recommend it. It's not an easy read, so it's not a popular level book. And in fact, I bought it a long, long time ago and paid $25 for it in paperback form. So it's only published academically, which means they triple the price. And, uh, but, you know, if you're a reader, a serious reader, and you want to seriously pursue the, I, this notion of the, of the role of the Spirit of God in the life of Jesus Christ, this is a premier book. And I would recommend it to you. It's, it's one of those books you'll read a few pages, and you'll put it down, and you'll go, hmm i got to think about that. But he makes some insights that are really, really profound. And he writes in that book on pages 31 and following, 
He says, and I quote him here, there are four things in particular that stand out as unimpeachable proof that whatever else is true of Jesus, he was genuinely a human being. That he was genuinely a human being. And then he cites four lines of evidence to that reality. They are as follows. Number one, that Jesus prayed to God. And so he will develop that idea. That Jesus prayed to God. And that's something that you and I, of course, would say, of course, you know, you go through the Gospels and, and we see in many places that Jesus prayed. In fact, the disciples come to him and say, teach us to pray because, you know, John taught his disciples to pray and the Pharisees teach their disciples to pray. Teach us to pray. Now, they wouldn't say that to him unless they observed him as a man of prayer. A man of deep prayer who was worthy of emulation. So the reality of, the, of Jesus' prayer life, that Jesus prayed to the Father during his earthly ministry, is one unimpeachable proof of his genuine humanity. His genuine humanity. Now maybe I need to say something here, um, just in case there might be any cloudiness in your mind with that. Um, Jesus is, I don't want to talk in the past tense, because Jesus is. Jesus is fully human in every sense of the word, essential humanity, yet without sin, yet without sin. In other words, Jesus is as human as you or I, yet without sin. And what that means, of course, is that sin is not essential to humanity. I know it's our universal experience. I know that we know nothing other than that and will know nothing other than that, at least in this life. But the reality of the matter is sin is the intruder. Sin is the alien. Sin is the, is the one that came in and disrupted, the human, disrupted humanity. So being a sinner, even though that's our universal experience, is not essential to our humanity. Jesus is human in every sense of the word. And the fact that he prayed to God is evidence of that reality. Secondly, Hawthorne points out that Jesus worshipped God. Jesus worshipped the Father. Again, as evidence, in his humanity, he worshipped. The God-man worshipped the Father. Third, that Jesus trusted God. Jesus trusted himself and trusted himself to his Father to care for his life, to provide for him. And then fourth, and which is the major theme of the book, Jesus depended upon the Spirit of God. Jesus depended upon the Spirit of God. He lived out his incarnational humanity in dependence upon the Spirit of God. Another very fine book that I would recommend to you, much easier read than The Presence and the Power. So if you're looking for something a little more accessible, it's written by Bruce Ware called The Man Christ Jesus. It's thinner, it's less expensive. It doesn't use, um, uh, yep, that's right, it doesn't use uh, Greek or Hebrew uh, in the text, uh, yet it is a very, very significant book. So I would recommend that one to you if you want to get started on the humanity of Christ, start there, The Man Christ Jesus by Ruth Ware. And he writes in his book, and I quote him here, simple statement, quote, When Jesus became human, he became forever dependent upon the Spirit. Think about that. 
The incarnation of Jesus Christ is a one-way turnstile. He took to himself human flesh. He he became the God-man, and that is never undone. Jesus now, at the right hand of the Father, sitting there, sits there as the God-man in his full glorified humanity. In his full glorified humanity. And in the taking of humanity to himself, he took to himself a position of of, um, dependence upon the Holy Spirit of God. This morning I want to look, I want to look briefly with you here at the place of the Word and the Spirit. The place of the Word of the Spirit in the life of Jesus Christ. And I want to do it for a very simple reason, and that is that I want to move and motivate you and I to adopt the same example, the same tracing, the same pattern for our own lives. As we are reminded of this reality, may it reinforce in you and I the same approach to a life lived for the glory of God the Father. So, I want to look at three areas. Okay, I want to look at three areas with you. We'll just kind of see where we go with all of this. The first area that I want to look at with you is wisdom. The source of wisdom. So, I'm going to turn you to Luke's Gospel. We will spend a fair amount of time actually in Luke's Gospel. But we'll be all over the place as well. But Luke's Gospel, chapter 2. So, you can turn over there. Luke is the only gospel writer to narrate for us anything having to do with the boyhood of Christ. And he only gives us one event, one incident, in, the, in essentially the, you know, following the birth narrative, of course, in the first 30 years of the life of Jesus Christ. He only gives us one. He's the only one to do it. And so the event that he gives us, the event that he chooses to narrate is significant. It is a significant event, and and it's worthy of serious uh, consideration and exposition, which I'm not going to do this morning, but but we are going to draw some some, uh, relevant thoughts out of this particular section. Of course, we're talking about Jesus in the temple, right? The time there when he goes down to to celebrate uh, the feast of the Passover with his family like any good Jewish boy would do. And yet, this is the one where... When the family leaves, you know, Jesus remains behind there in the temple. And you know the story well, right? His parents are greatly concerned for him, and they circle back to find him and so forth. And we'll talk about that. But I want you to observe something as we, as we got our, cast our eyes on this part of Luke's gospel. I want you to see the bookends. There are a pair of bookends here. There are two verses that, that begin and end this significant incident in the life of Christ. One of them is in verse 40, and the other one is in verse 52. Verse 40 and verse 52. And both of these verses speak about Jesus growing in wisdom. They speak about Jesus growing in wisdom. Let me read them for you. Verse 40. The child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. And then Luke narrates the 
the incident there in the temple. And then verse 52, he closes out this, this pericope, this, uh, this incident in the life of Christ. In verse 52, and he says, And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. So bookending the, 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 the narration of the event there in the temple are these two statements about Jesus growing in wisdom. About Jesus growing in wisdom. Now, wisdom, simply for biblical wisdom, is the ability to think and live rightly in God's moral universe. If we had to boil it all down, it would be this. How do I think and live rightly in God's moral universe? To be able to do so, to live with skill, is to live with biblical wisdom. And Luke is telling us that Jesus was growing in wisdom. And and verse 40 talks about him increasing in wisdom. And then we're given an illustration in verses 41 to 51 of that increased wisdom as it plays out, as it manifests itself. And then he closes out the account in verse 52 and says that basically it wasn't static. Jesus didn't stop there. He didn't just graduate valedictorian and hang up his diploma and that was it. But there was a continualness to it. There was the pattern of his life. There was the pattern of his life. Now look at verse 40 where it says the child continued to grow and become strong. To grow and become strong. Now, The strength being spoken of here is not physical strength. It's not physical strength. He is speaking here about the intellectual, mental strength of Christ. The humanity of Christ. It's not a statement to, yeah, you know, he used to be able to bench press 100 pounds, but now he can bench press 200 pounds. All right? How How can I make such a strong statement? Well, there's a whole lot of reasons for that, but not the least of which is it's irrelevant. A statement about his physical prowess is irrelevant. It would have nothing to do with the visit to the temple that is being narrated here. So this statement about his strength is a reference to his, to his intellectual, to his mental growth. And it was brought about by being filled in wisdom. By being filled with wisdom or filled in wisdom. The idea is that he is growing strong in the wisdom of God. He's growing strong in the wisdom of God. Oh, how do you know that? Well, again, it's narrated for us in verse 41, right? At 12 years old, he had grown strong enough in the wisdom of God to be able to sit down and have a serious conversation about serious theological matters. And I think the point that Luke is trying to to communicate across to us here is that as the boy Jesus grew, and he grew intellectually, and his mind was formed, it was being formed and shaped by the wisdom of God, by God's wisdom. And the source of that wisdom here was the Spirit of God. For it is the Spirit of God who uses the Word of God to bring about that kind of growth in humanity. The reference here, the end of the verse, the grace of God was upon him, I'm convinced is a, is a, is a reference to the Spirit of God. You remember, Jesus was conceived and the Spirit of God came upon the Virgin Mary. So from his conception, he was filled with the Spirit. 
So the Spirit was, was within him. It indwelled him and, and, and carried him through his life. Of course, I can't help but think about the reality that when you or I became conceived of the Spirit ourselves, right? The Spirit indwelt us and remains with us throughout our new lives as well. Now, this reference to grace, it, it can't be saving grace, right? I mean, it's, it's clearly not saving grace because Jesus didn't need to be saved. So it's, a, it's speaking of an empowering grace. And as I said, I think it's a reference here to the Spirit of God. The, the grace of God, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God was upon him. And he was growing in wisdom. Now think about his life for a moment. Just think about the, the life of Jesus, the, his boyhood. It was entirely unspectacular. We don't really have a whole lot about it. We can only reason backwards from some later comments. But, but, but he grew up in a, in a small town, right, in Galilee. And he, and he grew up in, in, a, in, a, in a normal Jewish home in which the, the scriptures would be loved and read. He would have attended synagogue with his, with his siblings and his friends and his family. He would have, he would have heard his mother uh, as, he, as she recited the scriptures to him. And, and he himself would have, <clears throat> even from his earliest ages, he would have learned to, to uh, recite the, the Bible himself. He would, he would have learned to write by writing out the scriptures. He had a very, very normal upbringing. But here now we're introduced to this event at 12 years old that is astounding. It is an absolutely astounding event because he is brought up in this, in this normal um, Jewish home and, and, and there's no a sense in the narrative at all that, that anybody has, has set him aside as one uh, who, is, who stands out. In fact, I would say that, that in verse 48, the fact that his parents can't find him communicates the reality that they didn't foresee this to happen. They didn't expect this. They brought him down to the Passover as they would have year and year. Look at verse 41. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. So this was a regular occurrence in this Orthodox, devoted, uh, devout Jewish family, and Jesus would have gone with them, and they would have brought him home again. But this year, something happened. Something happened. He remains behind at the temple. And his parents don't expect it. <laughs> They're surprised by it, and when they come looking for him, it takes them a while to figure out where he is. Something happened. To Jesus. There was, a, there was an awakening, as it were, that happened to him, I would suggest to you, at this time. There was a sense in which, for the first time, the, the reality of the Passover became to him intensely personal. For we find in him a level of wisdom that is uncanny. I mean, how was it that Jesus was able to amaze the religious leaders of Israel as a 12-year-old boy? 
Now, I've met some precocious young people in my life. But this would be something off the charts, wouldn't it? His comprehension of the scriptures, his ability to to interact with the, the religious leadership of Israel reflects something pretty amazing. I mean, how did one so young have such a profound comprehension of the scriptures? The answer, my friends, is it is the Spirit of God at work upon him through the Scriptures. Through the Scriptures. Let me demonstrate this to you. Let me take you to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah 11, and beginning in verse 1. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge in the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. The Spirit of God will rest on this one. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. Now you hear that expression, the fear of the Lord, and and your mind ought to think about the book of Proverbs. It ought to think about the book of Proverbs. Because if we turn there, and I invite you to do so, to the first chapter of the book of Proverbs. We find Solomon's words in verse 7. Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of the acquisition of real wisdom and knowledge. The Spirit of God upon Jesus brought upon him the fear of the Lord that that drove him to pursue God the Father, through the Scriptures. Look over to verse, or chapter 3. Chapter 3 of Proverbs. My son, do not forget my teaching. Let, my, let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Do not let kindness and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good repute in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean upon your your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. You can just hear Joseph, his adoptive father, With Jesus at his knee, son, 
Do not forsake my teaching. Listen to my words to you. For you will find favor and good repute before God and man. And so as the scriptures are continually poured into his life and the spirit of God makes them come alive for him, Jesus grows. He becomes strong in the wisdom of God. In fact, he becomes so strong in the wisdom of God that the words of Psalm 119 become true of him. Psalm 119 and beginning in verse 97. Psalm 119 and verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever mine. I have more insight than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, because I have observed your precepts. Huh. Interesting, huh? There in the temple is a 12-year-old boy engaging in spiritual dialogue with the religious leadership of Israel. Jesus is able to, to ask and answer questions that amaze his teachers, that, that amaze the ancient ones of Israel. Why? How? The answers are here for us. His life was given to the Word of God. And as he poured over it, as he meditated upon it, as he turned it over and over and over again in his mind, and he began to see and understand the significance of it as the Spirit of God illumined his mind to it. He began to see, this is me. This is me. He became the prototypical Psalm 1 man. You go to that first psalm, the, the, the entry door into the Psalter. And we read in Psalm 1, and beginning in verse 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. He prospers. Jesus embodied that truth. He embodied that truth. What was the source of the amazing wisdom of Christ? The source of the wisdom of Christ was the word of God. As it was mediated to him through the spirit of God who dwelt within him and upon him. Oh, beloved. In other words, he had no more spiritual resources than you and I. 
For we have the same word of God. The same spirit of God. Who is committed to you and to me. To, to un, uh, clear our mind, to open our eyes, to, to inflame our hearts with passion for his word. If we will but give ourselves to it. If we will but give ourselves to it. Jesus loved his Bible. He grew up a normal boy with normal boy things to do. Chores around the house, you know what I'm saying? And yet he found the time, he made the time to pour over the word of God. And to grow in the grace of God. Secondly, I want to look with you at the motivation for his submission. The growth of his wisdom, the source of his wisdom, and now the motivation for his submission. Go back with me to Luke's gospel again. Somewhere, prior to or at this time, and I would argue it's at this time, Jesus became messianically self-aware. In other words, he knew who his father was. For look at verse 49. He said to Mary and Joseph, Why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? I had to be here. I had to be here. Did you not understand that? Did you not know that? Jesus knows at 12 years old who his father is. In other words, he knows at 12 years old who he is. Who he is. At some point in time, it dawns upon him. That as I hear the scriptures read, as I, as I ponder them and meditate upon them myself, I, I come to see they're talking about me. I've often thought to myself, what must it have been like the first time he realized that Isaiah 53 was talking about him? What went through his mind? When he realized, that's me. That's me. Why would Jesus not launched on his messianic ministry here at age 12? Why did it take to age 30 
before he was ready to be launched. Such a profound understanding of the scriptures, it appears, at 12 years old. And yet, his schooling is not done. There's 18 more long, hard years of preparation. More classes to take, as it were. More lessons to learn. More experiences to to have. So that he might fully identify as our great high priest. Be touched with our afflictions. The writer of the Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 5, says something that's just staggering to contemplate. In Hebrews chapter 5, In verse 7. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him out of death. And he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. Now, of course, the greatest fulfillment of all of that would be there in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he wept and he begged his father to take the cup from him and then responded, but not My will be done, but yours. Beloved, you you don't just wake up one morning and to have that kind of a submissive heart. That That is cultivated over a long, long, long period of time. In many, 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 many difficulties and circumstances where your will is not God's will, where your will is blocked or frustrated, do you find yourself at a place in time, have you ever been here when it seems like God walls you in every way you turn? It's like he's actively against you. He's teaching you, if you will but learn. In the days of his flesh... He offered up prayers, plural, and supplications, plural. In other words, Jesus poured out his heart. And learned to wait upon the Father. To learn that the Father's will is best. He learned how to submit himself to God. What happened during those 18 years? Why wasn't his ministry launched at 12? There's a lot more work to do. I think his knowledge of the scriptures had to grow. Staggering and amazing as it was at 12 years old, there's more to learn. In other words, he he needed to go through the Bible a few more times. (laughs) 
Because there's a, there's a really amazing statement in Luke's gospel. In Luke chapter 24 and verse 27. I would never want to be back in those days. Except for this. I would have liked to have been here for this. Luke 24, 27. Oh, I don't know where to pick it up. Maybe we'll pick it up in verse 25. And he said to them, Oh, foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And here it is, verse 27. Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. That must have been an amazing Bible study, huh? Don't you think? Where did he learn? When did he learn? There were a lot of years of diligent study and, and serious contemplative meditation that lay in before him from age 12 to age 30. Beyond that, there were life experiences. He must learn the agony and grief of death. As his own adoptive father Undoubtedly dies. But when Jesus is next introduced to us at age 30, he is now the one caring for the family. His father's gone. Somewhere between age 12 and age 30, Joseph is removed from the situation. Jesus knows what it's like to lose someone. He knows what it's like to carry the the responsibility to care for others as he cared for his family as the eldest son. He learned what it's like to run a carpenter's business and deal with the public. All the complaining and the broken promises and frauds and tricksters. And everything else that lies out in the business world. Jesus learned how to handle the scorn that comes when there's a, there's a failure in your family somewhere. And people talk about you because of it. They, they pin it on you. They hang it on you. He had to learn to deal with the shame. John 8, 41. Somehow, somewhere, there was a persistent rumor that he was an illegitimate child. Because here in, in John 8, as he speaks there in Jerusalem to the, to the religious authorities, and he says to them in verse 41, you are doing the deeds of your father. And they said to him, we were not born of fornication. Yeah, he went back to the same village, right? You know how small towns can be. He carried the stigma somehow. They threw it back in his face. He knows what it means to submit. 
Back to Luke again. Luke 2. Verse 51. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth. And he continued in subjection to them. He continued in subjection to them. He honored his father and his mother. Fifth commandment. Even though he he knew who his father was, he knew who he was, he came to save them. And yet he humbled his heart and he lived his life in submission to their authority over him. And Mary and Joseph were amazing people, to be sure. But they were not perfect. And we should not think they were perfect as if their parenting never made a mistake. As if Joseph never came home having a bad day at the office and was a little grouchy with the kids. You know what I'm saying? But Jesus learned submission in all of this. How? What what, what empowered this kind of submission? I think the answer is the Spirit. It was the Spirit's power in his life that enabled him to say no to himself and yes to God. And I think we have an incredibly vivid example of this, this growth in submission by comparing the two, two gospel accounts of Jesus following his baptism and his entrance into the wilderness. So let me show you this. Go to Mark 1. Go to Mark 1. Following Jesus' baptism, which, by the way, this was for him. He's the one who saw the Spirit descending on himself like a dove. He's the one who heard the voice of the Father out of heaven. This is my beloved Son. This was his messianic anointing. This was the the sending him forth. Not ready at 12, but now's the time. In the fullness of time, out you go. But look at verse 12, Mark chapter 1. Immediately the Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness. It drove him into the wilderness. The Spirit of God drove him into the wilderness. And then compare that with Luke's statement in Luke 4 and verse 1. Luke 4, 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days. So which was it? Was he driven into the wilderness against his will? Or was he led around in the wilderness by the Spirit of God? Yes. 
What's, what's being communicated here is that at this moment in time, Jesus was willing to substitute the will of the Father for his own. He came down to be baptized, not to go out into the wilderness and, and, and fast for 40 days. He came down as part of the nation of Israel to be baptized with every expectation of returning back home. That was his plan. That was his will. That was his human desires. And yet God compelled him, drove him into the wilderness. And Jesus willingly went. He willingly went. Full of the Spirit. Recognizing, not my will, but thine be done. Following the 40 days and the subsequent recovery period, Jesus returns to Galilee, same chapter. But he doesn't return as a carpenter. I always like to think that when he left to be baptized, that he probably put a sign on the doorknob. Closed for two weeks for baptism. He never reopens the shop. Verse 14. He returns now as the Spirit-anointed Messiah. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and the news about him spread through all the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And they're all saying to each other, Hey, isn't that Joseph's kid? His life changed from this point forward. And he was aware of that reality. It says he, they handed him the Isaiah scroll and he, he kind of, you know, thumbed through a scroll. But, you know what I'm saying, he, he worked his way through the scroll till he came to the place. This is all before, by the way, uh, chapter divisions and verse markers. How come he didn't read Isaiah 53? From the Isaiah scroll. He chose Isaiah 61. And he made this declaration. The Spirit of God is upon me. I have been anointed to preach the gospel. And from that point forward, his life for the next three and a half years, was totally given over to do the will of the Father. Quickly with me, John 
chapter 4, verse 34. John 4, 34. This is with the woman at the well in Samaria. The disciples come back with food for him because he's, he's just exhausted. And he says to them, verse 34, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And they're all going, did anybody bring him a sandwich? I mean, they don't get it. He goes on, chapter 5, verse 30. And he says, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Chapter 6, verse 38. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Chapter 17, verses 4 and 5. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. And Matthew 26 and verse 39. My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Jesus had grown in submission to God as the Spirit of God worked in his life. Beloved, aren't we called to the same thing? Aren't we called to the same thing? And one last one, quickly, quickly. Matthew 4. The power over temptation. We won't spend much time here. We've spent years in the book of Matthew. We've certainly worked our way through this text. But here Jesus, driven and led, his will and submission to the fathers into the wilderness, where he experiences a fast that leads him to the, to the brink of death, to the, to the edge of, of extinction, as it were. That he might recapitulate the nation of Israel, that he might stand in for them as their Messiah. They entered the wilderness fat and full with manna and could not stand. Jesus enters at the point of starvation and is assaulted repeatedly by Satan. And each and every time he wards him off, how? By a recitation of the scriptures that are so deep in his heart, and in particular, Deuteronomy chapter 6, it repairs repeatedly here. The Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one, the Lord our God. You shall love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus' mind and heart is so saturated with the Word of God, the Spirit of God, working with that. Raw material, as it were, enables him at the point of his own death to do battle successfully with the tempter. But again, I think it is notable 
And I think it is worthy of observation that this epic battle doesn't come at 12 years old. It comes at 30. After three decades of preparation, he's now ready for the fight. He's now ready to battle Satan, to confront the archenemy of our soul. He's ready to cross swords with with the Pharisees and best them. He's ready to call to himself fishermen and turn them into apostles. Beloved, Jesus is my example. And he is yours. He is yours. You want to grow in wisdom? Do it his way. You want to learn the lessons of submission? Learn them as he learned them. Little ones at first. And then the testings get bigger and bigger. You want to learn to battle temptation? Battle as he battled. With a reliance on the word of God. If we will follow his example. Then we will know some of his success. Let's pray. Oh Lord. This uh, time of year, this season, we, our hearts are inclined towards thinking about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and, and all that's involved. We're thankful, how thankful we are that he went to that cross in our place. That he bore upon his sinless brow our sin, my sin. That he drank the cup of your righteous wrath, consuming every single drop until he could say it is finished. How thankful we are that the grave could not hold him That on the third day, in the power of your spirit, he was raised from the dead and you have declared him to be Messiah. That every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. How we revel in this reality. But Father, in the midst of all of this, let us not lose sight that Jesus lived our lives for us in more ways than one. For he has left us an example. He has left us a tracing. He has left us a pattern. May we learn, O Lord, to color inside the lines. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.